Well, we come back to our study on giving as an act of grace. There are some handouts back there. We're in the fifth part of our six-part series, so we have one more after this. And I've heard a lot of great testimonies from you. Thank you for sharing that of how God is working in your heart and how He just perfectly make, hit, uh, brings the perfect thing at the perfect time. Someone dealing with something and not really sure what they should do or how they should give or whatever, and then God just brings that truth to bear, and it's like, ah, there's the answer. And it's amazing how He does that for us. His Word is all-sufficient, and He desires for us to grow, and He has provided for us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So thank you for sharing those testimonies. It's a wonderful encouragement how God is working in and through his word. And we look forward to hearing more and more as we continue to apply these principles and learn how to give as an act of grace. Remember, for by way of review, uh, our memory verse is 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And as we look through all of these points and all these evidences, if you will, of giving as an act of grace, we find that they all really can fit into this one aspect, that we are to give as we have purposed in our heart. And we've seen a lot of the different principles that giving is an act of grace when we give regularly and individually and in spite of difficult circumstances and joyfully and generously and proportionately. And by way of review from last week, we found that we give uh, as an act of grace when we give sacrificially. And we found that that in 2 Corinthians 8.3 where it says they were asked to give beyond their ability or they, they willingly gave beyond their ability. So they gave according to their ability and Beyond their ability, and we found that giving sacrificially is giving to the point where you have to deny yourself something. You have to give up something, or you have to do without something. And as one man said, is very helpful, when you give sacrificially, you give a little of your selfishness away, which is very helpful for me when it comes to those things. We also found last week that giving is an act of grace when we give willingly, the Macedonians' example, they gave of their own accord. They were begging us for the pay, favor of participation in meeting the needs of the saints. Even though they were in very big difficulty and in abstract poverty, they wanted to give. And so we find the principle that Christians should be ready and enthusiastic when presented with the opportunity to give. And then we also saw that we, giving is an act of grace when we give ourselves, first give ourselves to Christ. They first gave themselves to the Lord. Scripture's just pretty clear, isn't it? It's just great. It's not hard to understand. Thank you. Thank the Lord for just making these things easy for us because giving from our heart is sometimes kind of difficult. But when he makes it clear, it really helps us to do that. So giving is an act of grace stems from our devotion to Christ and to his words. They had given themselves to the Lord and to the apostles' teaching as well, as we saw in chapter 8 and verse 5. Now, as far as our outline goes of the chapter and the context, we remember that <clears throat> in verses 1 through 5, the Macedonians, were there was an, their example of giving that Paul brought to them. And now we're in the midst of the Corinthians' instruction for grace giving. So here was their example, and we have many different principles and evidences of giving as an act of grace there. <clears throat> now we're starting to look at the Corinthians' instructions <clears throat> for giving as an act of grace. I have some water, but I also have <clears throat> a dry throat this morning, so we'll go from there. And if I'm groggy, it's because I took some medicine that doesn't do well with me. So hopefully, God can get me out of the way and, and use something here in this broken vessel. All right, so we're looking at those aspects, and we come to, um, last time, we looked at giving as an, as an act of grace when we give as an expression of love, right? We were proving the sincerity of their love, and we recall that he had written to them in 1 Corinthians about what love is in the context of unity, right? In 1 Corinthians 13, and then he brings out here, you are wanting to use your spiritual gifts. Well, you know what? Giving is a spiritual gift as well, as we found in Romans, and so <clears throat> if you want to add another aspect of love in unity and giving the way Christ loves then you give as an act of grace, which is also an aspect of love. So giving is one of the clearest ways to demonstrate genuine love for others. 
And we know that is true from how we define uh, love as well here at our church. And I can't remember it because my just out of, out of my head here. All right, so today we're going to look at another of the Corinthians aspects of uh, their, their uh, encouragement to continue on, their instruction. And that we find in verses eight, chapter 8, verse 9. Giving is an act of grace when we give inspired by Jesus' giving. If you look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So Paul supported here his call for demonstrating sincere love and giving by reminding his readers not only of the example of the Macedonian churches, but also of the example of the sacrificial grace of Christ himself. Christ himself, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Christ gave his all to meet our greatest need as an act of grace. And we know this to be true. That's what he says, right? You know this. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that. We know his unmerited favor. This grace. We know his unconditional benevolence toward us, right? We know, as Cranfield writes, the utterly undeserved, royally free, effective, unwearying, inexhaustible goodwill of God, active and in through Jesus Christ, God's overflowing mercy. It's a nice way to think about giving. We know that. And notice in the context of giving, it is even more personal. What Christ has done for us. And he's calling our attention to that. That the Son of God's personal act of willing sacrifice to meet our greatest need that only he could meet. He, through, though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. That's the ultimate sacrifice. It's not talking about he didn't have a place to lay his head or he gave up this or that. It's talk about the glories of heaven, what he gave up, the perfect glory with the Father, the perfect relationship and took on human flesh and dealt among sinful people and dealt with temptation and became a slave and a servant so that we might become rich. It's personal. Jesus was rich and yet for your sake, because he saw the need that only he could meet was willing to give up the riches of heaven and come to earth becoming poor so that his, through his poverty we might become rich. And that's the verse. Though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. And so the principle is believers should give in a way that reflects the grace that Christ has shown to us. We can't give as Jesus gave, we know that, but it should reflect the grace that Christ has shown to us. It should inspire us to give in a way that Jesus gives. And there are some truths to meditate on that reflect these that we need to come back to. Christ was rich, right? He was rich. He was rich in his person. He was rich as eternal God. He was rich in all of his possessions. He was rich in that he was the king of kings and he was the lord of lords. He was rich in his power. He could do anything. And yet he willingly gave up some of those things to come to earth. John 1.1 1, 1 reminds us of these. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He is God. And he was in the beginning and he was with God the Father in perfect unity. John 17, 5 as well. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which, we had, which I had with you before the world was. He was extremely rich in the glories of heaven with the Father in that perfect unity. And then verse 24 of the same chapter, 
He prays, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. And that's a great rich, riches. The Father loved him and they loved each other and it was perfect love. Why would you give that up? Philippians 2.6, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. And that's where we begin to see what he did for us. Colossians 2, 1, uh, Colossians 1, 16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in all things in him, all things hold together. He is rich. He owns it all. And it's all for him. And he was perfect, had a perfect place with the Father. And yet he became four, as Philippians 2 7 says. But instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. Becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. By taking on humanity, by being humiliated, by being a servant, by dying on the cross, he united himself to mankind, took on himself a human body. He left the throne to become a servant. He laid aside all his possessions so that he did not even have a place to lay his head. And his ultimate experience of poverty was when he was made sin for us and died on the cross. On the cross, he became the poorest of the poor and the most despised. We see also in Mark 10:45, for even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to, to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the greatest thing he gave up was Matthew 27:46 on the cross, where the Father out out of, away from that perfect love in heaven, he came down, took on sin, and the Father had to turn his face away as he poured out his wrath on him for our sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken? But through his poverty, we became rich, and which implies that we were in poverty. And we were. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sin, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we all too formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And in verse 12 he says, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. That's a good description of poverty in any situation. Matthew, in his Sermon on the Mount, he reminds us where we need to be in our poor and our poverty. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. We have to come to the point where we see that we are spiritually bankrupt. We are without God. We are without hope in this world. And we need to come to the Lord in our poverty like the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful. To be the sinner. So we are in poverty. But now those of us who have trusted in him by his grace, we all share in his riches. Undeserved. We are now children of God, joint heirs with Christ. And all the incredible riches and the glories of heaven await us in a place that is our Heavenly Father's home, being prepared for us by our Savior who died for us. Ephesians goes on in chapter 2, verses 4 to 10, but God, 
being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward, in Christ, toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourself it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then verse 13, apart from being apart from God and without hope in the world, but now in Christ you who formerly were far off have been brought near to the blood of Christ. Experiencing the riches that Christ had before he came to earth. Reconciled to the Father for all eternity. 1 Peter 1, 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fail, fade, fade away, reserved in heaven for you. Through his poverty we have become rich. In John 14, 1 to 3, Jesus said, Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you, you may be also. That's our greatest riches. Does that not inspire you to help others? When they have a need. When you think of all you have. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor so that you through his poverty would become rich. We should give in a way that reflects that grace. That Christ has shown to us. And when we think about our giving to the church and to further the gospel, we are giving so that others would experience the riches that Christ has purchased for those who believe. And so Paul is not here asking the Corinthians to give as Christ has given to them, or even to give out of their impoverishment as the most Macedonians have, Paul asked them only to give a proportion of what they have, a generous amount, a fair share, and he reminds them that Christ did not give his fair share. His gift was way out of proportion. His gift was beyond generous. His gift was completely sacrificial. Because that is what our need required. So such unmerited grace from our Lord to meet our greatest need should inspire the Corinthians and all Christians to be gracious to others when we see a need. Isn't God good? <laughs> and so we give as an act of grace also as we continue on when we give reliably. Instructing the Corinthians again in chapter 8 and verses 10 through 12. He says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage. Who were the first to begin a year ago, not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. But now finish doing it also, so that, there, so that just as there was a readiness and desire to do it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. 
For if the readiness is present, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. And so we give reliable. He says there is a desire to do it. Now finish doing it. They had made a commitment to give to the Lord. And if you can put yourself in, in the situation here, imagine you're Paul. You're the church leader. And so folks have promised to give to help another church in need. And you've told some of the other churches about how generous they are and how willing these people are in Corinth to give. And the other churches then are motivated by that example. And they're like, great, I want to give as well. And you find then that the first church is kind of uh, not sure if they want to keep their promise or not. They're dragging their feet and getting the offering together. So what would you do? What would most church leaders do? Would you try to coerce them? Enforce them? Go knocking on their door to get that offering? Or would you do as many pastors would do today and just accept that they've decided not to give and let it go because you don't want to stir up anything and think you're just after the money? Well, Paul didn't take either approach. Paul knew that the Corinthians not only made a commitment to him, but they also made a commitment to God. And Paul loved them enough to call them to keep their commitment so that God might bless them and allow them to experience the joy of giving and keeping their commitment to God. And that's why he says in verse 10 there, I give my opinion in this matter. For this is to your advantage. He used a lot of wisdom there. Very gracious. Very kind. He says he's offering his opinion or his advice. Now the ESV says judgment, and that's kind of a strong word, but it is an accurate translation of that. But it's his opinion. It's his advice in this. It's not a command. It's not a threat. And notice also that he begins by commending the Corinthians there and reminding them that he had not forgotten that they were the first to express the desire to give and to begin the preparation also. He says, I give my opinion in this matter, for this is to your advantage, who were the first to begin a year ago not only to do this, but to desire to do it. You guys are doing good. I want to encourage you to continue to do that. This is a good thing. And we don't know why they kind of slowed down. It could be because the Judaizers came. And we know that if you look at chapter 7 and verse 2, that maybe they were saying, well, Paul's in it for the money or whatever. And they're kind of hesitant or whatever. But that's been dealt with. And now they're in the right standing with Paul. And they're listening to him. And he's able to come and to deal with this through Titus. And so Paul is saying, as important as it was for the Corinthians to be willing to give it first, it wasn't enough. Because recognizing the need to contribute and responding by making verbal comments is easy. The true test is actually handing over the money. So Paul encouraged the Corinthians to fulfill their commitment. Right? Now finish, verse 11, doing it also. So that just as there was a readiness and desire to do it, so there may also be the completion of it by your ability. And again, Paul didn't say how much. He had no particular amount in mind, right? It's give as you purposed in your heart. He left it up to the Corinthians to give according to their ability. We talked about this before. He had justified proportional giving by appealing to the general principle, right? Giving is acceptable according to what one has. Back at the Macedonian, Macedonian example. And he also accepted sacrificial giving, right? Because the Macedonians were willing to do that. They were giving beyond their ability in the midst of their poverty. He was willing to, to accept sacrificial giving. But in this situation, in the context of, of instructing the Corinthians about giving reliably, about keeping their commitment, he steps back and he says, just give according to your ability. 
according to your ability. And it seems that there's a lot of wisdom there that he's using as well when you think about someone who is struggling to give. Paul has shown us that he understands how God works in the heart, what we've purposed in our heart to give, and it starts with starting to give. Some people don't give anything. And then the word of God comes and he penetrates their hearts and he teaches them and you see other people's example. And so then you start to give something. And then you see the joy of that and you see the gospel going forward and you see your lives change and your heart becomes more cheerful and then you want to give more but but you don't have the ability. And so you start to give sacrificially. And then there's more joy and more grace and you want to give more and you continue to do those things and God continues to change your heart and so every opportunity that comes up you want to give enthusiastically and reliably and helpfully and sacrificially and willingly and all of those things. You want to give every Sunday to worship. Paul knows that. Paul knows our sanctification, our growing in Christ like this is a process. And so he says you started Now you need to start, now you need to do it, you need to act on that. And just do it according to your ability to start with. And I'll let God do the rest in your heart. And that's how it works, isn't it? It may be difficult, maybe difficult circumstances, maybe hard. We may have difficult feelings and bad emotions about giving because of past things we've heard in churches or whatever. But God has said this, and we start according to our ability, and then you just watch God work. That's my hope. That's how God has changed my heart in this, and that's why I want to show these truths. And so we give reliably. If we make that commitment, just start by filling it. If you have purposed in your heart through this study that I need to start giving, start giving. See what God does. Here's what God says. You have a desire to do it? Now finish. Complete it. See what happens. It's a good thing. And so, Paul is teaching us here the principle, when believers commit to giving, we should fulfill our commitment. It's that simple. When we commit to giving, we should fulfill our commitment. A few thoughts to consider. We should commit to giving something. Fairly simple. That's where we start, right? The commitment is between you and God. Now, if you want to make a pledge or a faith pledge or something, some churches, that's your choice, right? If you want to tell somebody you're going to give, now, if you tell the elders, like, you know what? I'm going to give $10,000 this year. You can count on it. Well, make sure you commit that. And you complete that. But just in general, you should commit to giving something. And know that that commitment is between you and God. And know also, it is to our advantage to keep our commitment. That's what God says. It is to our advantage to keep our commitment. I give my opinion in this matter, Paul says, for this is to your advantage. You were the first to begin a year ago Not only to do this, but also to desire to do it. They thought about it a year ago, and now they still haven't kind of done it. But now finish doing it also, so that, just as there was a readiness and desire to do it, so there may be also the completion of it by your ability. Our verse, each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Do as you have purposed in your heart. But purpose to do something in your heart. Or you can't fulfill that, right? So, again, we're not coercing, we're not manipulating. It's just, here it is. Commit to give something. Your commitment is between you and God. And it is our advantage to keep our commitment. Because that's how God works in our hearts. And so we give as an act of grace and we give reliably. And next, we give as an act of grace when we give inequality. We find that in chapter 8 and verses 13 to 15. 
He says, for this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. At this present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, and so that their abundance may also become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who has gathered much did not have too much, and he who gathered little had no lack. So, at the present time, your abundance being a supply for their need, so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need. That's the simple verse there. The principle, Christians should give to meet others' present needs, knowing that God might use them to meet our future needs. This is God's economy, right? But when you think about equality, you got to really kind of think about that, especially in light of the current news headlines and giving, taking from the rich and giving to the poor and everybody kind of needs to be equal and all that stuff like that and fair and all of that. Well, understand that that is not what God is talking about. That is not what Paul is talking about. The New Testament never indicates that all economic inequalities within the church should be eliminated. That everybody should be at the same amount all the time. We're not referring to something like communism or socialism or anything like that for the church. Paul defines very clearly what he is asking in verse 14, right? At the present time, your abundance being a supply for their needs so that their abundance also may become a supply for your need, that there may be equality. Right now, Corinthians, you have plenty and it can help those who are in need in Jerusalem. Later, they may have plenty and can share with you when you need it. And this way, things will be equal. Give when you have the opportunity. Because you would want people to give the same for you when you have a need. And they have an opportunity. You never know who God is going to be entrusting with his money. At any given time. But you can always treat others the way you want to be treated. When you have the opportunity to give, you give. Remember that the Jerusalem church, when, which is in need now, they had early set the example for all churches, right? By having everything in common and everyone's needs being met, right? In Acts chapter 2 and verses 44 and 45. They still own property though. Because later on they would sell some more. And meet the needs and lay the offering at the apostles' feet and they would distribute it. Now we don't know why they're in need now. It could be from oppression, it could be from affliction, or it could be, as we find in other places in Acts, because of the famine. Which is part of the reason they're sending this offering. But whatever it was, he asked the Corinthians to help. And they need to be willing to do that, Right? So, this early practice of holding everything in common is not designed to seek economic equality, but rather to ensure that the basic needs are met within the church, wherever we are. Whether it's here, whether it's Ukraine, whether it's Romania, wherever it is, we as the church help each other when each other have need. You know, Ukraine's at war, they need things. We might be at war someday, they may send something to help us. We'll see what God does, right? And so, when you think about this, in verse 13, it is also clear that Paul says it's not for the ease of others, right? For this is not for the ease of others and for your affliction, but by way of equality. But just to go back for a minute here, since I've gotten past my notes. Here's God's economy, right? God creates the need. God provides the means to meet the need, and our notes are a little bit off here. That's going to be down there. And God moves the heart to express our love for one another in giving to meet the need. Does that make sense? God creates the need. God provides the means to meet the need. And God moves the heart to express our love for one another in giving to meet the need. That's how that kind of works itself out. But the few points for clarification, it's not call, a call to eliminate all financial inequality in the church. And second... It is now allowing someone at ease, some to be at ease, while others support them. 
that comes up, doesn't it? When we think about giving and here's a need, it's like, well, I don't know, they really need it or what's going on there. Isn't it wonderful God addresses all of these things? Nice. He knows our heart. He says there in verse 13, For this is not for the ease of others and for your, your affliction, but by way of equality. It's not for the ease of others. He doesn't want the Corinthians to be burdened with supporting the churches in Jerusalem so that the churches in Jerusalem can be at ease. Taking it easy. They're taking care of me. Corinthians are the welfare program now. We are not called to give for the ease of others. For example, when I was a pastor in our church, the leadership was very careful about when someone came and had a need. We would talk to them and say, well, what is the need? And what got you to this need? And maybe you need to sit down and do some financial counseling so that you don't continue to be needy. And you know what? You're asking the other church members here to give to meet your need. Do you understand that? Not just, you know, the CBC ATM here. That's what, where it comes from, just like in our government, right? People get on welfare, we're paying for that. That's, that's where that works. But we're not, you're not doing that. You're asking other believers to meet your need. And so, are you willing to do that? And a lot of times needs are met within small groups and things like that. And we just take care of those things. And that's the way it works as the body of Christ, right? But sometimes it's like, well, I'm not a part of that. And so here's my need, right? And so we ask them, are you doing that? And not only that, are you willing to ask them to sacrifice for you to meet your need? If you have something you could sacrifice to meet your need. Maybe you need to have a garage sale. Maybe you need to go pawn something. You know, you got $1,000 worth of guns in there. Maybe you could take care of yourself there. But we ask that sometimes about what, what's really going on. We want to be careful. We won't want you to be at ease so that, they, well, they're over here sacrificing to meet your need. God doesn't want that. I can tell you, you know, I wouldn't be asking for anything to meet my needs until I'm sitting in my living room with a card table on a milk crate eating my last can, can of green beans. But you know what? If you're a part of the body and you're living in fellowship, that's probably not going to get to that point. And if we suffer persecution and we are struggling and all the things like the ones in Macedonia, we'll all be sitting there in my card table eating that can of green beans. But we'll be thankful and have sweet fellowship in equality. Because we all have nothing. <laughs> but we have the Lord and the riches of heaven, right? And so, but the point is, he says very clearly, it's not for others to be at ease. So know that when you give, the leadership knows this as well. And they're very careful to take care of that and make sure. While we're there, though, I think it's important for us when we think about giving in just about any situation to know the difference between helping and enabling. The difference between helping and enabling. And it's fairly simple. Here's the definitions that I use. Helping is doing something for someone that they cannot do for themselves. That's when you're helping them. You're doing something for someone that they cannot do for themselves. Enabling is continuing to do something for someone that they can and should be doing for themselves. It's doing for something, continuing to do something for someone who, that they can and should be doing for themselves. We want to help people to continue to, to grow, to um, meet their needs, and be able to meet their own needs, right? We don't want to continue to support them forever unless they're widows and things like that from First Timothy, right? Where they need that. And so there's a difference, right? Helping is doing something for someone that they cannot do for themselves. Well, I can't do this right now. I can't meet my means or whatever. Okay, I want to help. But you know what? If you made a bad decision and, and that's why you can't do it now, okay, well, we can be gracious, you can ask forgiveness, you can repent, you can turn from that, and okay, we'll help you this time, but let's grow and change and not get in that situation again. Let's not blow all your money over here so you can't pay rent, right? All right, so let's work on that. But if we have to continue to do that, now I'm enabling you to continue in that sinful lifestyle and abuse others in the church and their sacrificial giving when you should be able to take care of yourself, Right? And if you're not moving in that direction, then we may get to the point where we can't help you anymore because we might be hindering God's discipline of you so that you might grow. 
I don't want to get in the way of God. Hebrews 12, right? Like a loving father, he chastises us so that we would share in his holiness. Sometimes those things happen. Now, we don't always know how it is, but we just have to use wisdom and discernment, and the leadership has to do that so that we can come to that point to know whether we're helping or enabling. And each situation is different. So there's not a cut-and-dry, cookie-cutter thing. Okay? All right. That's helpful. So here's some other helpful truths to consider when we think about giving inequality. Ephesians 4.28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing what is, with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. If you're living at ease and expecting the church to provide everything, you're stealing. If you can be out there working so that you have something to share, so you can give, right? That's the way it works. Isn't it neat how God just keeps repeating himself? That's wonderful. 1 Thessalonians 3, 10 to 13. For even when we were with you, Paul says, we used to give you this order. If anyone is not willing to work, then he is not to eat either. Waiting around for Christ to return. Oh, he's coming tomorrow, so I'm not going to do anything. For we hear that some of you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. You look busy, but you're not accomplishing anything. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ to work in quiet fashion and eat their own bread. But as for you, brethren, don't go weary, grow weary in doing good. Here's what's for them, the ones who are trying to live at ease. But you keep doing good. And you keep giving and you keep doing what you can. And you trust the leadership and you use discernment and you be careful. So just because you see somebody not doing it doesn't mean we stop doing good. And giving and helping. All right. Luke 6.31. Here's a simple one. Treat others the same way you want to be treated. You want them to treat you. Right. Inequality. How do I want to be treated when I have a need? I want to be given abundantly, generously, willingly to meet my need. And I'm not going to take advantage of anybody. And when I give, that's what I want to do too. I'm going to give abundantly, generously and make the need met. And show them we love them and all of those things. So that when the time comes around, that's, I might get the same thing, right? That's the way God works, okay? All right. So we, giving is an act of grace when we give inequality. And so that gets us through the Corinthians instructions for grace giving. And then we come to the leader's accountability for grace giving. And we find the principle, well, my thing is off down here. We're going to see, that's going to be weird. All right, so ignore the bottom line. So giving is an act of grace when we give confidently, right? Confidently here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 16 to 24. But thanks be to God who puts the same earnestness on your behalf on the heart of Titus. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent him along with a brother whose fame and the things of the gospel have spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also appointed... He, he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness, taking precautions so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent them with our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner, fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches of glory of Christ. Therefore, openly before the churches, show them the proof of your love and our reason for boasting about you. See, I told you it would go faster. There's a lot of verses there. All right. But the principle is simple. We are to be able to give confidently, as he says, we are, he is telling the Corinthians, we are taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in our administration of this general, generous gift. The leadership who is coming to get that and to take that to Jerusalem, they're being very careful to not be discredit them so that no one will discredit us or the administration of this generous gift. That's very reassuring. That's very helpful. Believers should give then the principle by give, trusting the leadership to distribute the offerings with integrity. There are sometimes people have been concerned. Like, well, what are they doing and how's it going and whatever. That comes up. But we should be able to give, trusting the leadership to distribute the offerings with integrity. 
As one merchant said, you know, while it is true that grace giving means giving by faith, it is also true that grace giving does not mean giving by chance. The Christian who shares with others must be sure that what he gives is managed honestly and faithfully so that he can give confidently. And that giving is the giving principle, and that is the giving principle we can glean from here. You give as an act of grace when you can give confidently, trusting the leadership to have integrity in how they do it. Sadly, the lack of confidence and communication by churches' leaderships in some churches in this area has caused many believers to stop giving altogether. And so others use their offerings to buy what they think the church needs because they don't trust the leadership or they don't know what the leadership is planning but they think they're doing what is right. And they'll take their offerings and then they go and buy it themselves. But these are not really biblical responses. We should trust our leadership. And so if you find yourself in a situation like that, in a situation that is hindering your giving, you should speak to an elder. You should talk to them. See what's going on. And as you've had up there for several minutes, elders should be open and honest with checks and balances in place. Hope they're convicted of that because it just stood up there for a while glaring. No, no. no, our church does a great job of that. And, and we know that. And they communicate that effectively. And churches do that in a variety of ways and there's not one perfect way to communicate that or to uh, do that. But they have checks and balances in place and they're careful and they have godly men taking care of those things and women helping as well. So, so we want to be careful. So for the leadership, Paul is saying here, wise communication and clear, helpful thing is helps our church to give in a way that is unhindered so we can trust where it is going. You think about other ministries that are going on, you hear about the integrity and how they've blown the money or they used it for their jets or they've used whatever. And it's like, ah, oh, do I trust these people? You can't. Usually in the situation like that is because they don't have qualified leadership. So here are some truths to remember. First Peter 5, 1 to 3, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd the flock among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, not yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And we have qualified leadership. And you can go through First Timothy as well. It's a trustworthy statement, the qualification for an elder. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to much wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into the reproach and the snare of the devil. These are the qualifications of an elder, and our elders are very careful to make sure that the men that they bring in are qualified like that. So that we can give with integrity. One aspect of many things. They're not lording it over there, and you're not coercing you, they're not manipulating you. They are careful with what God has entrusted this church with and what you have entrusted them with to make sure that it goes in the places that will glorify God and further his kingdom. And that's why they check the missionaries and make sure that they have the same gospel, and on and on and on. So know that here we can do that, but Paul says we want to be able to do that. We want to be above reproach in that. And remember Hebrews 13, 17, as you give confidently. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this will be unprofitable for you. If you have a concern about giving or where it's going or something's hindering that, go talk to them. They're gracious, they're kind, they will listen. Make their life a joy. And it'll make their life a joy because you simply went and said, I want to give. But I'm a little concerned here. 
So take the time to do that because we should be able to give with, with confidence. And so we give trusting the leadership to distribute the offerings with integrity. And today we've learned several different things, right? We've learned that we can give inspired by what Christ has done for us, right? By Jesus giving. We can give reliably. Right? We make a commitment and we keep that commitment. We need to give in equality, not so that others are at ease, but this is how God works, right? He creates the need, he provides the means, and then he works in our hearts to meet the needs and, and love one another. And so that in his economy... Whoever's entrusted with it gets to the other person and everyone is in equality. All of our needs are met as well. And we can also give as an act of grace when we give confidently, trusting the leadership will do what they, God has called them to do with that offering. Is that helpful? Praise the Lord. All right. One more week. Last week. And it's the best part. We've gone through the Macedonians' example, the Corinthians' instructions, the leaders' accountability. And now we get to... The Corinthians' encouragement and the believers' blessings of giving as an act of grace. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you so much for putting our hearts at ease by giving us godly men to serve under. Thank you for our elders. Bless and, and, and protect them. Keep them qualified. Thank you for the men that we have here who love you and your word and just Keep being faithful and graciously, graciously ministering your truth to us, caring for our souls. Father, we pray that if we have made, anyone here has made a commitment and all of us who have made a commitment to give to you, that we would keep that. We would fulfill that as we're inspired by what Christ has done for us. Who, though he was rich, yet for our sake became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich. For your glory, our Lord. Amen.